The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Right now on Fast, a Fed Ponzi scheme. One top investor says that is exactly what the central bank's policy amounts to. What's got him so concerned and what does it mean for the markets? Plus, two long-battered stocks both plunging today, but the chairwoman says a look at the debt for these companies tells us two very different stories. We'll get Feinerman's fine print on the moves in Carnival and Bed Bath & Beyond. And data doldrums, hedge fund titan Jim Chano says the data center stocks are the next big short. The reason behind his call and what it could mean for the tech space. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money live from the Nasdaq market site in the heart of Times Square. On the desk tonight, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Steve Grasso, and Guy Adami. We start off with a major warning from RH. Shares dropping after the company lowered its revenue outlook for the year. The CEO citing higher mortgage rates and a slower housing market for decreased demand. What's more, the warning comes just 27 days. 27 days after RH posted fiscal Q1 earnings. It joins companies like Microsoft, Snap, and Target, which also cut guidance due to quickly changing market conditions just weeks after reporting earnings. Uh, Karen Feinerman. Yes, Melissa Lee. The, uh, <laughs> the release is very interesting. He cited a, a myriad of, of reasons why c- consumer demand would be slowing, mm-hmm. and yet they still gave guidance for the rest of the year. Yeah, that's the part I really don't understand. First of all, I, kn- I think companies should not be in the guidance business at all. But you have an opportunity here. Hey, this wasn't what we thought. I mean, good for them. I don't know why they felt like they need to do this. Maybe they're presenting, or maybe they just want to keep the shareholders up. They don't have a duty to do it. But, okay, so they give us that. But I don't know what gives them the confidence to then talk about the quarter after, right? I really don't get that at all. And to have operating margin guidance there, I don't understand. You see, we know and they know they're telling us things are changing very, very rapidly. Our business is changing. So I don't know why they do that. I feel like it just it, it potentially puts them in a bad light if they can't make those numbers. I think they should just get rid of guidance for right now. And it gives so many other companies sort of, you know, cover to do the same thing. Right. Well, it's another one of these companies that have come in uh, just shortly after having given you some guidance. Yeah. They also said we haven't bought any stock, any stock back, mm-hmm. and they had just announced a big you know, stock repurchase plan. And they went out of their way to say we haven't bought any stock. And when a company says we're not buying our stock right now, you almost think <laughs> they think their stock's going lower. Um, and I, I just, you know, you look at Restoration Hardware and you look at their business, the fact that he is citing uh, luxury home sales down 18 percent, the Fed uh, hiking 275 basis points. I mean, these are things you don't typically hear out of a CEO. Uh, talking macro and dynamics, I get the luxury home sales dynamic. I, I just think if you look at the multiple on restoration hardware, hardly expensive. The one thing I would warn you about the chart, and we, we've been doing this now for the last few months, where we've been looking at companies where they traded pre-pandemic, and you can say, all right, 220-ish is really where uh, you're back to February 2020 levels. But if you go back to June of 2019, and I think this is something that you can express across a lot of other different stocks. When the, the thought was before COVID, we were going through some secular stagnation. This was a 90 to 100 dollar stock in June of 2019. The entire market rocketed into that 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 February 2020 level. So I just, you know, I'm not pushing uh 
trying to push restoration hardware around on a bad day. Um, it's a cheap company. I actually think they've done a really good job of talking about they're not going to be promotional. They're going to try to toe the line. They said that their last number. Um, but cheap isn't good enough here. I mean, have you gotten one of those catalogs? It's like 10 pounds of glossy pages. I, I mean, it's got to cost a bundle. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not even sure why they send that out. Everyone, everyone's shopping online anyway, but maybe that's the, the, the reason for their margins, too. So when I look at the stock, Tim nailed it, February 2020. Home Depot is still above that level. So you talk about not people not buying houses, and that's going to be a headwind for them. What about Home Depot and Lowe's? It's just that could be the Home same Depot's thing. not even down in the after hours. I mean, you right. look at Home Depot, it's down 15 bips. I would have thought Home Depot would have responded to this Well, number. I think what's really interesting also about RH warning, Guy, is that this is a different kind of consumer. I mean, this is a higher income consumer. And for them to say that over the next several quarters, this you know, consumer demand is going to continue to slow. That that's a statement yeah. on the higher end consumer we thought would spend no matter what. You know, it's fascinating, you know, to quote Meatloaf and Tim just did this, <laughs> taking the words Two right out of my <laughs> mouth, because what caught what struck me was they announced in this release was, oh, and by the way, we have not bought any stock back. You know, they announced that two billion buyback on the third, which was on top of the four hundred fifty million dollars, I think, that was left on a prior one. And just to show you how offsides people can get in this name, on May 16th, and this is not to cast aspersions, as they say, but Morgan Stanley initiated a $400 price target. I think the average price target still for analysts is either side of $500. And Berkshire... Oh, I think that we're having problems with Guy's uh, feed. Again, we had these problems. I thought yesterday. he was doing it for emphasis. <laughs> I know. Waiting, right? You're ready for bated breath. What's the next thing he's going to say? We're going to try and straighten but before it out. You, so I know you out. want to go to Karen, yeah. but before you go to Karen, what, what are the two things that people wind up equating with wealth? Their ho home value and their stock portfolio. Right. Both, Both of them down. are going south right now. So even for the high-end buyer, I, I would push back and say the high-end buyer is the one that steps back first because it, it, he doesn't have to buy those things. Right. It's discretionary. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's actually once upon a time when RH warned, I think it must have been like five or six years ago, they talked about the declining stock market as being one reason why they're seeing demand soften. So it's, it's not un, unheard of, this link between stock market wealth and the desire to buy home furnishings. One other thing they said in the release that I thought was interesting was that they're seeding some market share of lower value. Right. And so that as they improve their quality, that's sort of interesting. I guess that lower value margin must be very, very difficult now. Um, I think it's the right thing to do. It's probably not great for revenue, but um, I mean, this is a difficult time for them. I, I you're right about the, you know, the person and I would be one of them who, you know, terrible returns for, for this quarter and thinking about, uh, you know, do I really want to buy it? Really expensive RH. I think also it puts pressure on them to not, uh, they've had price increase after yeah. price increase after price increase. Mm -hmm. And one other thing they've done is this enormous expansion, right? right. Of all uh, home, um, restoration hardware, modern restoration hardware, jets, and, the jets, yeah. that seems maybe a little I don't know, not quite uh, uh, 
seems a bit tone deaf at the moment. Yeah. Well, it, it, what they were doing with prices during uh, COVID all the way through, and they could do it because of supply chain dynamics. They could do it because, frankly, people just wanted them. Uh, and, and they had that type of a demand. And, and, and for the first six months of 40-year of high inflation, uh, the consumer was willing to spend. And what I think a lot of these companies are running into, and, and you see this with a couch that was like at $3,000, it was probably overpriced. But when it went to 4500 uh, the last time you had looked at it, uh, and you had to have it, um, you don't have to have it now, if you ever had to have it then. Uh, and if you look at the stocks, you know, William Sonoma, which is also down 3.5% in the after hours, and that's obviously uh, a more relevant comp than Home Depot, um, and also a more relevant comp in terms of valuation. Not an expensive company. Trading at pre-pandemic uh, PE here, and a company that I think certainly, uh, this whole nesting thing is is not going away overnight, um, but the consumer not willing to pay uh, absurd prices for things that I think really relative to where they were two years ago, that's what we're up. More broadly, though, as we enter earnings season, we're awaiting companies to give guidance. Warnings like these make you less confident in any guidance any company gives. It's not just an isolated incident at this point where a company reports earnings, gives guidance, and then comes out a couple of three weeks later and changes it. Now there are a number of ones across sectors, uh, across in certain, you know, in terms of who the cu the customer is, who the end market is for their product. Yeah, I think. It, but first of all, I think it's worthless. So e even though they're confused about the guidance they're giving, mm -hmm. how can they tell you the guidance when we don't know what the next couple of weeks are? Gonna well, be? that's the point. So it's like, what what do you so believe? The, there's nothing. Right. There's no baseline here. So I, I thought there was going to be a window of opportunity where you start to see commodity prices come in. We have the CPI maybe surprised to the downside, July 13th. Maybe that n navigates a little bit of a way up, but it looks like we're sort of carving out a way to just go down. So, well, this gets us back in. So today's market was, was uh, you know, a market that on the surface didn't look to be all that bad. And in fact, but it, there was a fair amount of pain in cyclical stuff. And if you look at the bond market, uh, the 10-year yield is telling you in terms of how it's diving. Uh, this is the recession trade. But mega cap tech is very defensive in this environment. And there's certainly, this is a day where I think, you know, the Apples and the Microsofts and Amazon had a big day, um, masks some of the pain below the surface. And that, to me, is really the story of the stock market. Because as we get into second quarter numbers, uh, we haven't heard anything out of Apple. We haven't heard anything in terms of a demand profile hit. Um, what we're getting out of a restoration or even what we've started to hear out of uh, some of the other CEOs that have been coming in even a couple weeks later, that's exactly what I want to hear out of the biggest companies in the world who have not done that yet. And, and that's where we need to get through second quarter. And it may be coming faster than we thought. By the way, if you put a price, if you put a technical on that level, so the February 2020 high going down to the COVID low, the halfway point is $175 for restoration hardware. So if you want to put an ultimate end of world sort of part two, that's where you have to look at support. Right, but to, I mean, to Tim's point in terms of the bond market move, I mean, the yield curve is, the, the spread is like four or five bips at this point. Right, two's tens. Yeah, two's yeah. tens. Um, and then we had the Russell 2000 down one and a half percent. I mean, these two, granted, these are isolated data points. This is one day. But right now, the message is no, the the we are headed to, uh, you know, growth slowdown. And, and, and watch 3 percent, which is a really important level uh, of support in terms of yields. Obviously, bond prices are moving higher. And, and on some level, this is kind of a relief to not see equities and bonds both trading off in the same direction. But b bonds are rallying uh, because it's a safe haven rally. And it's a safe haven rally. And if you look at kind of 309 in the 10-year, um, is one key level, uh, but really 3%. Uh, in the same way stocks are testing and, and got smacked down at the 50, whether that's Microsoft, whether that's NVIDIA, all that uh, very clear over the last couple of days, not breaking above that downtrend. Yields need to hold uh, that uptrend. And if they don't, um, it actually probably is more pain for stocks.
Um, Karen, when you start thinking about consumer discretionary and the pain, I mean, if we're to extrapolate what some of these companies are telling us, who are you worried about? Uh, so Capri is one, yeah. right? Um, that's one that trades at a really cheap multiple, but uh, not only has that you know luxury conglomerate multiple plan not worked, they actually traded half the multiple they used to before they bought Versace and Jimmy Choo. That would be one. Uh, I'm curious to see how some of the ultra high luxury, like a Louis Vuitton, um, I don't own that, but I'd be curious to see how that trades. Then I sort of think about names like Ulta that I have, right? Does that still, does that consumer, is it a small enough ticket item hmm. that, you know, they still want to go to the, the store, it's an event, it's fun, you, you know, you try on a bunch of makeup and you buy something for not a ton of money. I feel like there is still some room there yeah. in Ulta to work. There's a big difference between a, a bureau and a lipstick <laughs> in terms of price point. Um, it's always fun for me to go try and make it. Always find that a good way. I to heard you in the green room not today. Any, you not had to listen to anything wrong with that. He was very oh. no. I don't want. I don't want the bronze. Just the regular color. It was yeah. very. You know. I've been doing this for too long. <laughs> um, who are you worried about? If you extrapolate. So well, first of all, two thirds of the overall market, two thirds of stocks trade with the overall market. So you have to be worried about pretty much everything in your portfolio to certain degrees. I would agree with Karen. Luxury is going to be a problem. Um, for me, I think you have to worry about large tech still with a rising rate environment. All right. Our next guest says the Fed strategy isn't just a policy error, but a Ponzi scheme. Those are his words. Pantera Capital CEO and co-chief investment officer Dan Moorhead joins us now. Um, Dan, great to have you with us. Uh, your, your letter was very interesting. Um, and I, I didn't know that the Fed did not buy any bonds whatsoever for, what, 95 years or so until now. And then they went, they went all in. Um, so walk us through why policy is now a Ponzi scheme. Well, yeah, so the Fed used to just control the overnight rate. And even that has been way behind where they should be. The uh, policy rate used to, on average, be about a percent and a quarter above inflation. It's now 700 basis points below inflation. Uh, they've just gotten the overnight rate back to where it was right before the pandemic. And when the pandemic started, inflation in the U.S. was 2.3, and it's now 8.3 in official terms. And then there's a problem with the way they report housing. Uh, the true inflation rate's in double digits now. So that's, that's a, a policy mistake. But completely separately is their manipulation of the mortgage market. The Fed used to not invest in bonds, didn't manipulate the long curve. They let free market actors like pension plans, mutual funds, uh, insurance companies do all the lending in the economy. But in 2020, they decided to get involved in the uh, mortgage market. They ultimately bought $6 trillion of uh, government and mortgage bonds. And to put that in perspective, the record year for issuance of mortgages to all Americans was a quarter of that size. So in two years, they did 200% of all mortgage lending in the U.S. And there's some big ramifications that unfortunately we're just seeing now. Hey, Dan, so Fed's credibility, I, I, I'm with you on this, and we've been harping about a lot of different things. What's the most credible thing they could do here? Uh, because, again, you've got Jerome Powell, who people have been following the Fed, know at least this, this guy was a dyed-in-the-wool hawk guy who somehow got pulled in a different direction different times. I'm not sure we, we defend that. Um, what's the most credible move they can make to, to begin to build back? Yeah, there's two things, right? They have to deal with the overnight rate. And for a long time, they said it was transitory or some supply chain issues. 
and I think to build credibility, they have to make it clear that uh, it's not a couple container ships stuck off Long Beach Harbor. It's a supply of labor issue. Uh, we have twice as many job openings in America as we have people looking for a job. The um, unemployment claims in the U.S. hit a all-time record low. Only one out of a thousand people uh, filed for new unemployment claims, which is kind of the odds of getting hit by a coconut. Um, so they need to establish credibility on the short-term side, but really they got to stop manipulating long rates. They have to let the free market do that. And right now, uh, Case-Shiller housing index is still running above 20%. Uh, nationwide, that's not just hot markets, that's everywhere. And the Fed is uh, loaning money in short term at you know one and a half percent, and even uh, long term rates are, are very cheap. We've never had that much of a spread between the appreciation of housing at 20% and mortgages at five or six. That's literally double the previous wide in that spread. We had uh, it around five percent in the 70s, and we had it. Uh, about uh, 7% just before the global financial crisis. And obviously both of those ended up disasters. So the Fed's really created a huge housing bubble and they kind of have to get out of the housing market before that's gonna correct. Dan, it's Karen Feinerman. Let me just follow up on that part. So we know now that they're going to, as part of QT, mortgage backs will, they'll be selling. And how do you think that market will absorb that? And if you follow that through, what will happen to housing prices? Yeah, so they have uh, really not sold any mortgages. They're just saying that they won't replace all of those that mature. You know, unfortunately, I think they have to start unwinding their book and letting the free market uh, establish the correct rate. Um, housing has been a huge windfall for homeowners and, and in particular speculators. You know, one of the biggest issues with this policy mistake is it's not like, you know, everyone in America owns a home and it's all great for everybody. 35% of Americans don't own a home. They're trying to buy a home. And even those that own a home, you know, might be wanting to expand into a larger home for their family. And 20% of all homes in the U.S. last year were sold to speculators, institutional speculators, with money they borrowed from the Fed, right? So um, it's really not advantaging uh, most Americans. The majority of Americans, you know, this is not a great policy. So they have to get out of the bond market, reduce their holdings, and let the free market find the right rate. Um, obviously, housing has is up 38% since they started this policy, which is insane. That's never happened in our country before. It probably can't keep going up. And at some point, unfortunately, I think you know housing has to come back off. And it does seem likely a recession is coming. So, so Dan, I mean, we're grateful to get both your be able to get both your global macro sort of take on things as well as your crypto take. So can you just sort of play this scenario out if we do head down this path and you say a recession is likely? How are you positioning your portfolio? I mean, do you I would think with somebody with such strong views, you do have some macro trades on in addition to your crypto positions? Yeah, so one of our essential views is that Although, you know, obviously interest rates have to impact bonds mathematically and they almost certainly have to impact stocks. Uh, and then other things like real estate will certainly be targets of the Fed. There are some asset classes like cryptocurrencies that should be uh, uncorrelated or disconnected from the interest rate markets. So although it hasn't happened yet, uh, crypto has been very correlated with risk assets. I can easily see a world in say a year when stocks are down, bonds are down, um, 
you know, real estate's down, but crypto is rallying and, and trading on its own, very much like gold does or soft commodities like corn, soybeans, all doing very well. So that's the uh, world that I think we'll see. So basically in six to 12 months or so, or longer, um, all the asset classes are down except for crypto. Could be, including commodities okay. and other things that are not, right. any kind of fixed quantity thing that doesn't have a direct connection to interest rates could uh, keep rallying. Because you know the fundamentals in crypto are still very positive. Obviously we had a huge uh, bull market and now a huge bear market, but I've been through five of those so far in the 10 years we've been investing in crypto. So it's not, you know, this is not unprecedented. We've seen it a lot. Dan, great to get your take. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Dan Moorhead of Pantera Capital. Tim, what do you think? Well, again, the, the garden variety drawdown in crypto that at least someone like Dan can speak to, uh, you know, he can he can speak with ice water in the veins and say that, look, I've, I've seen this before. Um, the dynamics of the uncorrelated and, and certainly the argument for crypto is everything that's going wrong with the Federal Reserve. So um, I can agree on those principles. I, I think, you know, some of the pain that's going on in the crypto market, the three hours liquidation, the, the Grayscale Trust trading at a massive discount yeah. to, to NAV. I mean, these are dynamics of, of, of margin. These are dynamics of of people being offsides, uh, a little bit of liquidity is, is a cancer in an environment like this. And, and, and to be clear, back to the overall stock market, I, I don't think that the retail trader or the retail asset flows have really capitulated here. Uh, and these are the kinds of things that I think are early stages of that. And I think we've just gotten going. I, I agree with um, most of what Dan had said, because, um, you know, recession is what I'm what. But the, the problem is you're going to see the market, which is a leading indicator. Mm -hmm. You're going to see. So the Fed, once he's once they start uh, raising rates about eight months later on average, they start cutting them. That's going to be where the market leads. So there is some light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know what a garden variety recession looks like, but I think there's more pain to the downside early term. And then back half of the year, I think we could see a rally in the market. All right. Coming up, set to deliver. FedEx holding its first investor day in over a decade, and the new CEO is eyeing some big growth. What he says is next for the company. Details ahead, plus a smartphone celebration. The iPhone turns 15. So how will Apple outdo itself next? We are breaking it down when Fast Money returns. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. 
I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We're going to drive uh, uh, operating margins of, uh, to double digits. Uh, we're going to drive balanced revenue growth. And we're going to improve uh, our asset intensity and ROIC of uh, 200 basis points. Uh, overall, uh, drive a total shareholder return of uh, 18 to 22 percent. That was FedEx CEO Raj Subramanian speaking to CNBC ahead of the company's first investor day in a decade. But despite a double-digit growth forecast, the stock lost over two and a half percent today. So is FedEx ready to deliver on its aggressive goals? And we were just talking in the first block of the show about giving forecasts for the rest of the year and how dangerous that is. And Tim brings up a very good point as it relates to FedEx. Tim, and what would that be? Well, in their first analyst day in over a decade, they're, they're going to give you not just a quarter outlook for the next quarter in difficult times, maybe not even the end of 2022. They're going to give you a three-year EPS guide, which is going to grow between 14 and 19 percent on a Kager basis, leave you with EPS of around 30 to 35 in 2025. I mean, that's great stuff, except for the fact that nobody can tell us what's going on. And, and this is about a company that's trying to establish credibility and, frankly, hasn't been able to forecast their business in the past. So uh, I'd rather hear CapEx trends and free cash flow trends, because for FedEx, I think those are more important. Yeah, I think part of it was a, it's not a great day for industrials. So we'll give them okay. a little bit. Fine. OK, but as Tim said, I mean, maybe it's great for them to have corporate planning out several years. It probably is. That makes sense. But to, this is a company that we talked about last week, over-promise and under-deliver. Last, they seem to put out mm -hmm. very good guidance above the consent. The bottom of the range was above consensus. But, you know, your PEs, you know, low double digits. The bar is not high. Why, why say we can jump over a bar that's so much higher? I don't really get it. This, you know, it's a new CEO, but he's not new to the company. Establishing credibility, I think, is super important. A three-year target right now just seems, I, I don't know why they need to do it, but, uh, I mean, it will be fantastically cheap if they reach those numbers. I mean, they had every reason to just say they're going to meet estimates, right? Analysts, in large part, they like the stock. Most, most I own analysts, the stock. Most, okay. most mm -hmm. people have a buy rating or the equivalent on the street. Um, so to give guidance that is above what the analysts thought, I mean, why bother even doing that for just this year? Guy's back. Hi, Guy. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry, Mel. I'm sorry, everyone. Why? That's a great question. In this environment, there's no reason. But they had announced this, so they have to do something. But, you know, hidden in that operating margin of 10 percent, that sounds great, except that I would have rather them said, look, we're trying to get express margins, express being half their revenue, which is currently about 8.2 percent, north of 10 percent. And then we're going to build from there. So that doesn't excite me that much because the blended operating margin right now is about 9.3%. For me, that's my takeaway. I think that's what disappointed the street, amongst other things. With all that said, UBS just put a $315 price target on it for the reasons that everybody mm. just stated. 
Valuation is compelling, but that has not been a great reason to own the stock. Quick, Grasso. I, I think that they just throw out this guidance because no one's ever going to call them out on if, if circumstances change, if the environment changes, they could just rehash and pull back their guidance. But the, to, to Guy's point, the stock is down 10% year to date. It's rallied 6.5% in the last month. It is crushing UPS on a relative basis. So whatever they're saying, Investors are buying and the street likes it. Whether it's right or wrong, it's whiteboarding it and throwing Although it out UPS there. Although UPS had eaten its lunch for the, for pre the previous year. Yeah. And again, because it's a much more efficient company. Anyway, a lot more fast to come. Here's what's coming up next. 15 years ago, Apple changed the world. But as the iPhone hits a big milestone, what's next? The traders break down what the tech titan still needs to do. Plus, semi-earnings on deck. Micron set to report. So should you plug into the name? We're taking a dip into the options pits to see how the traders are playing it. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create. Like Olu Shehi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Apple celebrating 15 years of the iPhone today. That one product still the biggest revenue driver for the company. But as growth slows, what will or should be the next one? For more on this, let's bring in Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. Gene, great to have you with us. Hi. Hi. One, one criticism, if you want to call it that, of the company is that they need recurring revenue. Um, not just services revenue, but revenue that, that is recurring. And, and I'm wondering how you think the company gets there if it needs to. They need to get there, I think, for the valuation to break out to new levels. I think that if they get into new categories, uh, whether it's uh, the, the headset we've talked a lot about, potentially something in the car, not saying they're going to get there, but that would be something uh, that would make it so they don't have to do that. But I want to uh, more directly answer your question, is that I believe that Apple wants to sell hardware as a service. They've been experimenting with the iPhone upgrade program, uh, that has had some success, but the concept of what we've seen, our usage, the need for more consumer-driven uh, tech support over the last couple of years, I think opens the door for them to sell, to sell hardware as a service. We refer to this as the, the 360. We've been talking about it for a couple of years now, and I believe it's still on the, 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 uh, the docket. What that means is essentially you'd pay Apple uh, one uh, monthly fee like you do with uh, some of their content. You can get arcade, you can get news, you can get uh, TV plus. But imagine doing that for, let's say, $150 a month, and then you get upgraded every couple of years for your watch and every three years for your computer. That would, I think, uh, have a, a significant re-rating. And uh, as far as the timing on that, it is a function of time. 
it's probably more three years out uh, than one year, but I believe that eventually this 360 bundle will come to life and will satisfy this nagging question around visibility. Hey, Gene, it's Karen. So that's a really interesting model, but I want to switch for a second to another one, which is the car which you touched on, which would seem to me to be just a gigantic capital expenditure. Not they can't afford it, they can, but what do you think of that endeavor? Do you want them to do that? I would love it if they do it. I, uh, I'm not going to say that they're going to do it today, but I can say what we saw at WWDC around them uh, taking over the whole console and having 15 major OEMs adopted, I think, is testimony to the traction that consumers have wanting to integrate their mobile experience into a driving uh, experience. And so uh, the, the CapEx uh, question, just quickly to address that, is that it is a big number. They can afford it. But I think that uh, there is a shift in terms of how I think about it. I do believe that making a car, an electric car, is less parts. I think it's it's less complicated than would would uh, would, would meet the eye. It still would be a huge uh, event if it happened. Apple wants to do something. Whether they get there or not remains to be a question. If they do it, they uh, the stock is going vertical because uh, the addressable market, I mean, they, they can get, if they get 10% share of the automotive market, that will effectively double their business. I mean, this is the equivalent, uh, the car would be the equivalent uh, to the uh, iPhone as to the iPod. Uh, life to date, they've sold, now that's that product's done, but 450 million iPods. They sold 2.3 billion iPhones life to date. Uh, it's now uh, 50 plus percent of their business. That's something that the car could be there. I hope they do it. Uh, fingers crossed, going to have to wait a few years to find out. Gene, there's a lot of concern, I think, going into their quarter, which is a month from now. But for the first time in a while, you can make a very compelling case for Apple on valuation, probably close to, I don't know, 20 times next year's numbers. You back out the cash, obviously cheaper than that. What are your thoughts going into earnings here? I think you need to be uh, cautious across all of tech. I think Apple's no exception. I'm a big believer. I think this is a $250 stock. I think that the odds are that it probably goes lower, just like everybody else, into the print. I hope I'm wrong, but that's that's the, the bet. And the reason is that uh, you're just talking about it with FedEx. Like, uh, if you give positive guidance in this environment, you're tone deaf. And so Apple gets that. They do give a form of guidance. I suspect that it's going to be something like the June quarter was great, but there's uncertainty, so we're going to play it a little bit more cautious in terms of our outlook. And uh, I think that even great companies, that has a negative impact. That's trading. I think if you think about investing, what they're doing uh, with this 360 bundle, we talked about other product categories, still very bullish. But I suspect that a lot of tech is going to sell off on this June print. Gene, last quick question. Um, you know, tonight we got RH revising its guidance lower after, you know, 27 days after they, they gave earnings and they gave a forecast then. I'm wondering, are there any data points that you've seen so far that get you cons concerned, maybe not just a single one, but but a, a, a combination, I mean, between Microsoft's FX warning or Target or what we heard tonight from RH? The piece that's made me most concerned is some work that CNBC did. There was a, I forget what it was, 20 or 25 Fortune 100 uh, CFOs, I believe, uh, loosely remembering this, but uh, this was recently, and all of them said that they're uh, less optimistic about the back half of the year. I think that's all you need to know. As far as incremental data points specific to Apple, as we look at their lead times, the lead times continue to improve. That's hard to say whether that's a function of improving supply chain or decreasing demand. I think it's probably the former. And uh, I think that uh, just across the board, 
uh, one last data point is around big tech, that uh, 10 of the 20 big tech had negative commentary around the June quarter when they reported March. Since that, two of them, Microsoft, you mentioned, and Tesla have come out and said negative things about the kind of what the environment that we're in. So call it 12 of, of 20. I think that that number is going to go up even without any specifics. It's simple psychology from my perspective. And I want to leave with where we've left before, that I think all of this is going to be painful, but I think it does still set up for resetting growth rates in 2022, which does set up for, I think, what's going to be a strong year for tech in 23. All right. Uh, Gene, thanks. Gene Munster, Loop Ventures. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess that there's a reset this year. It's even better for, for 2023, Grasso. That's optimistic. It is optimistic. As the market goes, so will Apple go, right? So it's a big part of the market. It's a big part of sentiment in, in the overall market. But I think you have a better chance of AR, VR being what they're looking for as far as new products. Now, for me, uh, Apple is never an innovator but they perfect anything that they put their hands on. So I'm not looking for the car, but I am looking for a host of other things. And no one, no matter what your income bracket is, is going without a phone. So I'm still bullish on the, on the name, although you might get a little hiccup in the near term. I wish they would do a TV that's sort of like a home operating center, but um, that's, my, that's my own personal wish, Apple. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> Say it I, again louder, maybe, though. Yeah, <laughs> you never know. And remember, at, at the 10-year the anniversary, they released the Apple 10. Um, I don't think we're getting that same thing here. And in fact, it's, what's interesting about the iPhone today versus when it started, and even now it's evolved. They, they have the same processor in their cheapest phone as their most expensive. They have it in shapes, colors, sizes um, that we didn't think they would do at one point. In fact, they seem like they're staying away from it. But the Apple experience is part of, you know, the goal is to get it part of everybody's life. So the dynamic here in terms of uh, services, great. Hardware as a service, Gene's point on that, critical. Um, everybody expects to upgrade their phone every three years or, or, or maybe even less uh, and, and have Apple take a bit of a bite out of them. I think that's going to continue for as long as this company is more about, uh, you know, social uh, you know, inclusion and dynamics around that that I think is, is what's important. Guy, I'll give you the last word. You got your Mac desktop turned around with a picture in front of it. So uh, I see that you're very dependent well. on your products. <laughs> well, I mean, given the fact that my phone's dropped the last few days, maybe I'm up for an upgrade cycle. And I got some people from the investment committee texting me asking, is it true that you're supposed to eat an apple a day? I've, I, the last time I ate an apple might have been 10 years ago, neither here nor there. My concern has been is this, you know, I think a lot of people are worried about this quarter. I think the market will rally into the Apple quarter and they're going to disappoint. And I think that announcement is going to take us the next leg lower in the broader market. At least that's what I've been looking for and that's what I've been saying. Coming up, the nitty gritty on two big laggards today, Bed Bath and Carnival, both deep in the red. So Karen's doing a debt check on the names, which she says is a big warning sign for investors. But first, a semi-sweep up, Micron earnings on deck tomorrow. So we're checking in on the options pitch to see where traders, how traders are playing this one. We've got the details when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the SMH Semiconductor ETF getting hit hard today with names like NVIDIA, AMD, NXP all hitting 52-week lows. But option traders are betting on a big turnaround when one stock in the space reports earnings tomorrow. Tony Zhang has the action. Tony. 
Yeah, that's exactly right, Melissa. Micron reports tomorrow and traded fairly actively today, just shy of two times the average daily volume. And options investors are currently implying a pretty sizable move here, about 7.6% on this earnings versus the last eight quarters of only 5.1%. And as you said, Micron and semiconductors overall not doing very well, underperforming the market, and one specific trader seems to be betting on a turnaround, buying 3,000 contracts of the July 1st weekly options that expire this Friday, $59 call strike, paying $1.05 for those calls. That was actually above the asking price. So this is a trader that's laying out more than $300,000 in premium to bet that Micron's gonna be at least 7% higher by Friday, just the break even. But you really need to see about a 10 to 12% move to see a reasonable profit on this specific trade. So someone's betting on a pretty big turnaround here for Micron. All right. Thanks for that, Tony. Tony Zhang. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, is the devil in the debt details? Bed Bath and Carnival both sinking in today's session, but Karen says one may be in more trouble than the other. The Feinerman's fine print is next. Plus, a new bet from short seller Jim Chainos, a growing competition coming for one group of stocks. More on that when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Two names crashing double digits today. Bed Bath & Beyond falling more than 23% after CEO switch-up. Carnival Cruise sinking more than 14% after Morgan Stanley said the stock could go to zero in a worst-case scenario. But are both of these names really in dire straits? It's time for a fireman's fine print. Karen, you've been doing some digging. Yes, I think, you know, anytime we have something as dramatic as this, I always look at the debt because I really believe debt investors are much smarter often than equity investors. So Bed Bath & Beyond, you have to look at the debt when you think about this. So I picked one of the tranches of debt, uh, the three and three-quarter notes due August 2024. So those are coming up in two years. It's actually a little bit worse since when we made, then when we made this graph, a little bit worse. So what this is showing you is that this senior unsecured debt is yielding 33% to maturity. 33% in, right? That, that's a disaster and a red flag. So it made me look a little bit further. Let's see, all right, how's the balance sheet? How's their cash position holding up? Not well, not well at all. That's not great for a retailer because you need cash to be able to, you know, get your inventory for the holiday season. They have a little bit of time, but this is really going in the wrong direction. So if I look at something like Bed Bath & Beyond, I think this is one, that absolutely could end up in bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it will. I don't know for sure. I don't own a position long or short, but lots and lots of red flags here if you look at the debt. On the flip side, let's look at Carnival Cruise. We all know that there's been a rebound, but then maybe they backtracked some. There was this piece out today that was interesting. It talked about costs going up, revenue going down, but let's look at the debt here. So we have these five and three quarter notes due March 2027. These are down a lot. Remember, rates have moved, so bond prices move conversely to interest rates. So these are yielding 13.367. That's high, but it is not anywhere remotely close to when you look at something like a Bed Bath & Beyond that's showing you, a, you know, a, real, a real chance of the whole balance sheet unraveling. Carnival Cruise, they have some time as well, so a few good things can happen. So this is one that... Very different, very different. And uh, I, I don't own the stock here either, but that's one that I don't foresee the zero. And to be fair to the analysts, they weren't saying that's the most likely case. The worst case that is scenario. the worst case. 
Yeah. Seven, I think, was the, the expected case. Not nearly as bad. I don't own either of them, but always look at the debt. They're much smarter than the equity investors. Yeah. Guy? No question, but now we're in an environment where, you know, you wonder if the meme group is going to get involved in names like this, because mm -hmm. quite frankly, the short interest has to be growing. And in terms of Carnival Cruise, I mean, I think we're talking about levels, forget about the pandemic low. I mean, this is probably 15, 16 year lows in the name. So I think what you're trying to do here, especially in a Carnival Cruise, which traded two and a half times normal volume, you're looking for opportunities to trade it from the long side, because yes, worst case scenario, zero. That's true for a lot of things. But the flip side of that, you can get a 30% rally and still have the problems that they face. So I think you trade it from the long side here. All right, coming up, call it a data dump. Jim Chano sounding the alarm on data center stocks. The reason for his call next. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Digital Realty and Equinix dropping a short seller. Jim Chino said the cloud is coming for the legacy data centers, the bricks and mortar data centers. In an inter interview with the FT, Chano said when your biggest competitors are three of the most vicious competitors in the world, then you've got a problem. Chano is, of course, referring to Amazon, Google and Microsoft. Um, he says they are hyperscalers. And while they are tenants right now of Equinix and, and Digital Realty, they will be looking to build their own and host their own. Um, so what's the trade here? Are you on, uh, are you on board with Chanos, Tim? Yeah, look, I, I, I think the, the dynamic around value accruing in the companies that are actually in the space rather than the data centers themselves is the story. I think uh, Jim is often harping about valuations. I think he's probably very excited, and I think he's used the term dot-com era on steroids is where we are now. Um, I, I would just go back to, like, even for Microsoft, uh, and for Google and, and for AWS at times, we've talked about that pressure and where margins have to come down and, and that that actually has been something that we've worried about for those companies. So let alone these smaller players, no question. I, I love Jim Chano's work. It's really fascinating. I think he sees the big picture a lot and then gets more granular. My only pushback here would be, all right, if you're this industry right. and you see these terrible dynamics coming of these big players and what do you do? You can either cut price or you could merge. And I think, I mean, if I were they, I'd be thinking about it. I don't know the synergies that you would get there, but you got to be thinking about changing that balance of power in any way that you could. So get bigger, get bigger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Guy, what do you think? When Jim comes out with things like this, and he'd be the first one to say, and he's probably watching right now, he's not suggesting this is going to happen tomorrow or a week mm -hmm. from now. Sure. But he does extraordinarily thoughtful work. And go back, if you want proof positive, it was last summer or last spring that he was talking about DraftKings and how that seemed to be a bit of a house of cards. That's when the stock was north of 60, and look at it now. So my only pushback would be, don't get short the stock if you're looking to piggyback. But if you're long this stock or these stocks, I would take note and do some work on your own because the work Jim does speaks for itself. Okay, up next, final trade. It is time now for the final trade around the horn we go. Guy Dami. McKesson's one of the best companies we want to talk often enough about. Look at MCK, Melms. Tim Seymour. Look at the energy space. Yes, there's been a big pullback, but some of the utilities within the energy space, including energy transfer, are, are yield machines and never had better balance sheets than they do here. Take a look at that. 
Karen Feinerman. Yes, one that you haven't heard me talk about on the long side for quite a while actually is Alibaba, which I recently bought. Not a huge position, but I do feel like the tide changing there. Specifically for Baba in terms of the uh, tech crackdown or just the China landscape overall? Both, both. Coming together at the same time, the valuation. So one that you have heard me talk about pretty mm -hmm. recently because it was my last week's final trade, XBI, small cap biotech index, down 33% year to date. It's up basically 20% from June 16th. I think there's a long runway for the stock, a lot of tailwinds, XBI. All right, thanks for watching Fast. Uh, we'll see you back here tomorrow at five for more Fast. We'll see you on Squawk Box tomorrow. Set your alarm clocks. Yeah. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. Picture this, it's Saturday morning and you're on your John Deere compact tractor. You're effortlessly breaking ground on your new landscaping project. Next, you're moving piles of rocks just by moving a lever. And now, you're enjoying the warmth of the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand everything you can do with a John Deere compact tractor, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.